This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, Episode 8, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we're joined by... Oh, I'm supposed to say my name? Yep. <laughs> I'm just enamored. You guys all have such beautiful teeth in the room. <laughs> so my name is Benji Mall. I am the founder and principal, one of the principals of Arcs Urban. Uh, we are a Boston-based investment firm focused on affordable and workforce housing. How'd you come up with that name? Arcs in in a in ancient Rome was kind of the peak, the safest point of the city. And given our social mission, it kind of makes sense. We're trying to create, um, you know, middle market housing. So A R X A R X. Does yeah. everyone spell it? It's horrible. I you know that's the I, I wanted a name that started with an A and then went through the Latin dictionary and I was like, oh, this fits perfectly with the mission. And then it's just explaining A R. K-S, A-R-X, <laughs> people call it A-R-X, Urban, and, you know, at some point, hopefully, the brand will be so uh, mainstream that everyone will just know it's ARCs. Like spelling Nike. Exactly. So could tell, be, tell us. It could, could be A-R-10 for Roman numeral. 10. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Don't mess with the brand. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Um, yeah, thanks Benji. for coming. Well, yeah, thank you for joining us. Well, what did you, sorry, what did you mean by middle market? Middle market. So uh, th- it's like... Everyone talks about workforce housing, affordable housing, middle market housing. Just to break it down simply, I think we we are targeting folks who earn roughly between $40,000 a year and $80,000 a year. And that's a class of housing that is rapidly disappearing around the Boston market right now. And so we're trying to be innovative and in thinking about how we can both preserve the existing workforce housing stock as well as, as use innovative methods to create new workforce housing. Can we go back to the beginning of Arcs Urban and maybe early in your career too? Can you bring sure. us up through your story, how you got into real estate, how you've developed such a deep expertise, and I would think some more of the creative ways to finance deals and look at ways to put projects together. And um, You want me to start way at the beginning? Like I, I started my career on the trading floor at Lehman Brothers in 2008, so that was an interesting beginning of a career. And uh, realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be a very good trader and that I wasn't really meant to uh, be working at a big financial firm. So I kind of mi- meandered my way through uh, through New York City to a different, uh, few different real estate groups and kind of realized, hey, I was working, providing equity capital for very, very large developers and ultimately realized, hey, uh, you know, I want to be closer to the action. I love what these developers are doing, but, you know, sitting in an office tower in New York City, financing a deal in Dallas or in Boston or in California, I, I just felt a little far from the action. And so ultimately I decided to get my MBA and, and just kind of do a double check that uh, that real estate was for me and, and kind of use those two years to figure out if I could start my own real estate firm in whatever capacity that would look like. And while I was getting my MBA, you know, I went to a smaller school, so there was about 250 people per class, and everyone kind of, you know, I think there were three other people with real estate experience, so everyone kind of knew me as, oh, that's the guy who did real estate before. And one of the landlords, um, the, the school I went to was up in um, up in New Hampshire, and one of the landlords of one of my, my colleagues, one of my st- classmates was selling their home. It was like a two acre parcel overlooking a river and there's a huge shortage of student housing. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this, 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 uh, this house. It was in Vermont, actually, right across the river from New Hampshire. And I'm going to turn it into 14 townhomes. And so I convinced the real estate professor to say, okay, cool. Well, you don't need to take a class this semester. Let's do an independent study and I'll help you put the pieces together. And I basically just went around putting together a pro forma and, and met with like 
30 real estate groups and just put the deal in front of them and got absolutely ripped to shreds. And they, you know, the, my big takeaway was, all right, I could spend the next seven years of my life building 14 townhomes in Vermont, or I could go learn from other folks kind of at a more entrepreneurial level how to do it um, and put deals together. So I ended up working for a small real estate uh, private equity firm with, you know, guys and gals in their young 30s who had, uh, you know, raised a little bit of money and done some, some great deals. And they kind of said, hey, look, we like your institutional real estate experience. We like your background. We'll back you in Boston. So that was uh, we're coming up on the five-year anniversary. The first deal we bought was a little parking lot right next to the government center garage. I think one of the big takeaways for me was I pretty much did most of the work on that deal. And we ended up having five partners as well as a third uh, a, a joint venture equity partner. And it was a very, very small deal. So it wasn't really, the, the deal wasn't really for the financial return for me. But as you guys always talk about, you know, paying for my education, I was paying both in getting my MBA, but also paying in this deal and how much I worked relative to the, uh, the amount of upside that was in it for me. Did you make money on that? Yeah, I mean, it was a great deal. I think it was roughly kind of a, uh, you know, 2X equity multiple. And we sold it um, to another Boston-based developer last year. I, I tell folks who come into my office and ask, how do I get started every week? Like, forget about making money the first few deals. Obviously, you don't want to lose money, but it's not all about that, you know. You're not going to have that huge windfall. There's no, I don't think we know any developers that make a million dollars on their first deal and retire, right? No, One, I think the developers. only exception is if you come into this business at 45 years old and you've made money elsewhere and you have a lot of capital to employ on your first deal. Or otherwise, if you have family money, I don't know. But assuming that you're growing organically, it's very hard to make a ton of dough on that first deal. So you're probably a minority partner, like it sounds like Benji was in this parking lot. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did everything, right? I did the acquisition, I found the financing, I did all the asset management, I did the investor reporting, and it was a great experience doing that. I think that for me, that allowed me, A, that it was a big enough deal, that you know, high-profile enough deal that I could go around town and say, hey, I bought this, and people started taking me seriously. But more importantly, I just I learned how to put the pieces together in a way that was different from my institutional experience because at the large private equity firms, you know, where you have an accountant not working on the team, you have a lawyer working on the team, you have an asset manager, you know, I was doing everything. And I think that, you know, that that education was was amazing. So what were some of the details of the deal itself? Yeah. So I think the deal was, I think we bought it for $3 million plus or minus. It was, you know, because of it was a parking lot, the financing that we could get was roughly 50%. And I remember uh, when I was in business school, it was like the, you know, the last few weeks of business school, everyone's out partying, playing golf and doing fun things. I was sitting in a conference room negotiating the purchase and sale agreement, essentially did the debt brokerage myself. So I called 22 local banks to find a lender who would lend on it, which was a great experience in and of itself. And so there definitely was a lot of sacrifice early on, but it was, it was well worth it. It was, it was a great little deal, you know, and, and, and so what what'd you build there? Uh, we didn't build anything. So what, one of the things we did was it was the largest electric vehicle charging station in the city of Boston. And there was the developers who built it had converted it from a gas station and had taken it kind of like to the 10-yard line. And there was still a little bit of meat on the bone, signage, a little bit of asset management stuff, adding night and weekend parking. And so just by paying attention, and I used to go sit at the parking lot kind of on <laughs> nights and weekends just to see how traffic was flowing and ways that we could improve. And we added signage. We added 
you know, we went on to some apps and added the, the you know, the parking lot onto the apps and, and was able to increase the, uh, the, the operating income pretty significantly from the developers who had actually converted into the lot. So is your brand more focused on holding? Or, Absolutely. Okay, so you really don't, you don't buy, build, sell. We do not. We sold the parking lot. It was one of my first few deals just to show track record, right? And I think early on, every developer, it's important to to get some deals done to show, hey, I built this, I acquired it, I did X, I did Y, I added some value, and then I realized that value. I think that's important to show to investors. I think that's important to show to banks, to everyone. I think that we have kind of three main tenets of our company. The third tenant is we call ourselves generationally focused. So the goal is to hold stuff for as long as we possibly can. I think that in in holding for the long term, it helps both reduce volatility both for ourselves as well as for the tenancy, the, the, the affordable and workforce housing tenancy that we're trying to create and preserve. The first two tenants are one is that we're socially minded. Like I said before, we're really thinking a lot about how our projects impact the community as well as maximizing the ability to create housing for kind of that that workforce class. So tell us a little bit more about how the company kind of got its focus on the workforce housing. You were in you were at Lehman and probably the worst possible time, 2008, market collapsing. I think Occupy Wall Street was there. Was that sort of a catalyst for the idea? Yeah, honestly, I didn't know anything when I was 22 <laughs> years old. You know, I ended up on on, on Wall Street by chance. Um, I, I actually was my senior year of college teaching and was like, wow, this is so hard. I'm going to go to Wall Street, <laughs> which was also just, you know, I just wanted experience. And so it really didn't happen until kind of years later once I started doing deals and this kind of thesis formulated. You know, the first few deals we bought, we bought kind of class B and C apartment buildings. I I believed that over the long term, this was going to be a great investment thesis, right? There's, you know, diminishing supply, growing demand for this type of product. So just from a macroeconomic level, I was like, oh, this is a great investment thesis. And we bought a building in Chelsea. We bought a building in Lynn. We bought some buildings in Dorchester. And I realized pretty quickly how much of a human aspect there is to overseeing these buildings. The first building we bought in Dorchester was it was a 49-unit building we were talking about before that was was on the city's bad property task force list. There were, I think, 30 or something calls uh, in one weekend to the police. And the tenants basically were protesting because the, the, the prior owner um, hadn't kept up, was asking for rent increases. And we went around and, and raised very long-term socially minded equity that basically said, hey, look, we'll own this building for the next 20 years. You don't need to go displace all of the folks in the building. Let's just raise rents very slowly over time. And we'll basically provide a sense of stability to these folks. You know, early on, people looked at us like we had, like, what the heck are you guys doing? You know, no one believed us that we weren't going to improve the building and not kick everyone out. But after a while, we developed just incredible rapport with members of the community, tenant advocacy groups, and that kind of led to our next whole bunch of deals. The, the neighborhood kind of said, hey, look, here's this auto body shop across the street. Why don't you buy it and turn it into housing? And so we had a, a, a wonderfully robust community process. It definitely was long and um, an, an open community process. But we got that deal because the city and, and members of, of that community said, hey, you guys did a great job off the site. You, you did kind of development without displacement. Like, what else can you guys do? Is there a lot of capital out there, private equity or available capital that is that socially focused? We syndicated our deals early on. So that means that we went out and raised money from 20 to 50 people. I think we have something like 65 investors 
across all of our deals. But, you know, low-income housing, there yep. there's tax credits. Yep. There's plenty of subsidies available to build uh, for the bottom. We know that luxury housing doesn't have a problem uh, buying that, yep. that product. It's always been the case that the workforce housing is tough, and that's why a common critique of cities is that it's the ultra-wealthy and the poor, yep. and the middle are squeezed. So how do you make the economics work for that middle workforce uh, group? Number one, it's much easier to buy and preserve the existing workforce housing than to build it from scratch. You know, you might spend $200,000 plus or minus per unit to buy that building. If you're going and building that building from scratch, it's going to cost you in the city of Boston $400,000 a unit. Number one, it's much easier to, to, to preserve middle-income housing than it is to create new middle-income housing. If you are creating middle-income housing from scratch and, and developing, you have to have some sort of either subsidy or some sort of different playbook. And so we're in the process right now. Um, we've been studying co-living for the past few years, and, and we just filed with uh, with the city to build a uh, 250 bed plus or minus co-living facility in Austin. And we think that that's a great way to use the private market to provide kind of opportunities for folks in that $40,000 to $80,000 salary range. And what is co-living? Is that essentially like rooming, a rooming house? It's, it's a, we'll call it rooming house 2.0. You know, I don't like using the word rooming house because it has pretty negative connotation, but essentially- um, oh, rooming house is done right. Rooming house is done right. I like yeah. that. I like that. I'm, I probably won't bring that to the community groups, but you know, <laughs> um, I think that it basically is sweet style living. So if you went to graduate school and you had, you know, three or four folks who shared common areas and you, you kind of had your own ensuite bathroom. You're basically renting rooms. You're basically renting by the room, which exists already through Craigslist. We're just basically trying to create and remove as much of the friction that exists in that practice right now and to get folks out of triple deckers, right? Because right now what happens is three or four graduate students team up, they find each other on Craigslist, they live in a triple decker. That housing, which was originally for families, is now unaffordable to those families. So if we can create this new type of housing to get hopefully some of those folks out of the triple deckers, hopefully that provides a new opportunity for kind of workforce housing for families. So co-living focuses on specific demographics? Not necessarily. I think the average age of our uh, co-living operator in their 3,000 homes across the country is about 29. So it's actually skews a little bit older than most people think. And the average stay is just over two years. So it's not move in and move out. You know, the way that we're doing it is no undergraduate students will be allowed. And I think that's that's a pain point with a lot of communities. Generally, folks want to see older tenancy, um, as well as... Um, you know, no leases less than 12 months. Are the majority of the buildings you're buying existing or are you doing a mix of purchasing existing buildings and building? Yeah, back? exactly. So we have kind of three business lines. One is acquiring existing buildings either with subsidy. So we're actually teaming up with a few municipalities right now to buy existing buildings and turn them into essentially affordable housing. So we're going to put essentially rent caps in these buildings, as well as using kind of social equity, uh, social impact, private equity to buy these buildings and just over a very long term, you know, roll the units to market without displacing tenants. So that's kind of one business line. The second business line is using innovative development methods to, to create this workforce housing, one of which is co-living, one of which is using innovative methods of financing to build new housing. And then the third is we do a lot of advisory work where we'll raise capital 
using crowdfunding, for example, for other developers who are growing their firms? Crowdfunding seemed to be a buzzword a couple years ago. It seemed to hear less of it. Is that true? That that is that a growing trend, or is it on the decline? Did it ever take off? You were very involved, and maybe continue. We've probably raised, I don't know, fifteen million dollars of equity through five or six crowdfunding portals. We Can were you just of, define it too. Crowdfunding. I mean, it's essentially basically we call it online syndication. So if you think about how historically deals are put together. And I'm talking more buy and hold deals, $5 million plus. Deals are syndicated, so they'll go raise money from, you know, a developer will raise money from five to 100 people. Well, all crowdfunding is, is taking that process away from the country club and moving it towards the internet, where it's, uh, there, there's essentially advertisement to invest in these real estate syndications. And these used to be banned under SEC rules, but then SEC passed, was it Reg D or something a couple of years ago? Yep. And that's what basically opened the floodgates because— Yep, so Reg 506C mm-hmm. uh, allowed for general solicitation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just got really impressed. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially all that means is like, I, I just know 506B and C because it's, <laughs> it's a means by which a developer can go out and advertise their deal to— accredited investors. So that's folks earning more than $200,000 a year or have more than a million bucks in the bank. Can somebody go on Facebook today and just say, I'm looking for investors? Or can somebody go out to a social networking event and just openly solicit? Oh man, this is like way above my pay grade. You mean, you mean just a networking event, not a social network I don't want to, any, any of your listeners going to jail on my well, behalf. Well, no, no, what I'm, uh, yeah, and if you don't know the answer, that's fine. I was just curious because I see a lot of it, right? I, I see it all over some of the Facebook um Well, what's technically allowed and groups, what is, yeah. what, I mean, real estate historically is everyone does whatever they want. And, you know, most people don't file when you do a private deal. They don't file, you know, under Reg 506B or 506C. I think something like, five or 10% of total real estate deals are actually filed. That gives you an indication that most real estate folks aren't necessarily playing 100% by the rules. I think if you're going out and trying to raise $20 million and you're just advertising that on Facebook, I think that's a probably a no-no. Are you buying or selling crowdfunding as a means to financing a project going forward? Ooh, that's tough because like the word crowdfunding means so many different things now. I think that I'm selling crowdfunding as most people think about it, which is you go online and you invest in an entity that's owned by a crowdfunding platform that then invests in another person's deal because there's just so many layers of fees. And truthfully, I don't think that necessarily some of the crowdfunding companies that that no longer exist really knew how to vet deals appropriately. What I am buying is I think the best sponsors are going to have direct access to both their own existing investors and new investors. So it's like crowdfunding with your own portal. There is white label technology you can use to raise money through your own portal. And I think that's the future for the best operators. Can we talk a little bit about the capital stack that you utilize to finance or fund your deals? And how are you going about finding your investors? What are the terms that you're giving them? What are the returns that they're getting? Sure. Et cetera. Wow. Okay. Sure. So, you know, I started off with kind of that institutional experience and Almost all of the structures that are put in place for investors are based off of, uh, 
you know, an IRR waterfall, right? And so, so an IRR is something you guys have talked about before. I'll just define it for your listeners. It's internal rate of return. So it's a, a time-sensitive method of determining kind of what your overall return is. Most of the deals that I did early on were had an IRR hurdle, meaning that once I provided a certain return to my investors, I would receive a promote or a a higher percentage of the profits above a certain level. So for example, a very typical IRR hurdle is an 8%. 50% of the deals I see have an 8% hurdle. So you go, you raise a million dollars. I sell the deal at the end of year one. I basically, an 8% return would be $80,000. So I need to provide $80,000 to my investors. And then there's some sort of split thereafter. Um, and so that's pretty typical. That's what I did early on. The problem is if you do a, a deal that's 20 years and it's IRR weighted, it's very hard to have a high IRR over a very, very, very long period of time because it's a, it's a time sensitive measure. That was my follow-up question. Cause you're saying you want to hold some of these properties or projects for a very long time. And I know a lot of a lot of developers, you know, their goal in syndicating is to buy something and they have a five to 10 year term and then they either sell it and, you know, roll off their investors or refinance and that's their kind of end game. So if your end game is a, a little different, how do you structure that with your investors? So I think that we're really focused on, we basically have a, 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 a waterfall structure that rewards us for returning capital to investors through cash flow. And and typically for us, that takes between seven and 10 years. It's not like, you know, I'm doing it in two years by juicing up the rents. It's a very long-term, very methodical play. And in the financing that we get when we buy these buildings really mirrors that thesis. Are you taking less of a percent of the cash flow at the beginning? And then does it grow over time, just like the investors grows over time? How do you- Exactly, okay. exactly. So it's, it's, it's instead of there being a, an, an IRR hurdle, it's a, uh, essentially like a bond yield. You give me a hundred bucks, I owe you $8 every year. And once I've paid you your $8 every year and your hundred dollars back, then I receive some pieces. So it takes a really long time to do that, but you know, that's okay. That's what we're, that's kind of our thesis. You've had an interesting opportunity. You've been able to work with the city of Boston. You yes. worked in their innovation lab, um, sure. helping them with with syndications or yeah, financing I mean, these types of deals too. Yeah. So, so actually, the, the way I got to know Mark was through um, One in Three, which is the mayor's council for uh, folks twenty one to thirty four. So named because one in three Bostonians are between twenty one and thirty four years old. Although I hear that's crept up since. Probably. I think they also re- they changed it to Spark Boston. That's correct. Re- rebranded. Rebranded. Are you guys still in it? No, I'm an we're, al- we're alums. We're yeah. alums. Nice. So Mark was like the big, I, I think it was a year after you, two years? Yeah. Mark was, he was kind of a hot shit back then. <laughs> I was, Am I allowed to curse? Sorry. I was a team leader to be technical. Okay. <laughs> he left a big, he left a big wake there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We did some cool stuff when I was a team leader, though. We had we were about to start at the Lucas, which was this major church renovation project for the company I work for. And the project was about to go into demolition. And we threw this awesome party for Artists for Humanity. So it had a social benefit. And we filled that church with like 400 people. I was there. That was a great party. That was a good party. Uh, what were we talking we about? Were, so we were asking, I was essentially just trying to figure out 
Did um, you bring some of the same strategies that you would learn and 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 help yeah, the city? So, yeah. So part of uh, part of my my one in three experience was I basically uh, did a consulting project for the Innovation Housing Lab where I tried to explain here's what crowdfunding is, how are ways the city could use this to increase affordability and you know do types of developments that the city ultimately wanted. And it was it was super early on in the crowdfunding process. So the you know that that environment and that world has changed 20 times over since then. But obviously that was a great way to 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 build relationships and understand kind of what people in City Hall are looking for and go from there. So before we started recording you were telling us that one of the things that you're sensitive to is how uh, folks treat tenants, especially as they acquire buildings. A strategy that's sometimes employed is to see a building with rents below market and you come in and clean house and then try to bring in tenants to replace those existing with more market rate. And that uh, on its face is is something something of an enigma to arcs are. Yeah, I'm certainly a capitalist um, for one, but I'm not against improvement of housing. And obviously there needs to be some sort of return associated with that. You know, I see very very frequently where folks buy buildings with the intention to convert the housing to condos or to, to improve it and bring in, in new apartments. And they'll basically go in day one and, you know, give people 30-day eviction notices. And I think, A, you know, these are people. And I think that you should go in day one and have conversations and figure out how you can help people move. And you figure out, hey, you know, can you give people an extra two or three months, you know, so they can get on their feet and save up for their next security deposit. And, you know, in the end of the day, that extra month or two isn't going to kill you on your project. And and just housing can induce a, a lot of stress and, and, and negative health outcomes. So I just would like to see folks be very cognizant of of what they're doing in that in that sphere. I'll be honest. I will take a building with asbestos, with differential settlement. I will not personally take a building with tenants in place. If I'm going to do a condominium conversion or something, I I typically do insist in my offer that the building be delivered vacant. And it's a lesson that I learned from experience. Um, I have the scars to prove it. I bought a two-family with one unit occupied, and I was young and did not have a huge capital uh, behind me. And the the tenant dragged their tenancy out for not two to three months, more like seven to eight months. And at the end, hired a pro bono attorney. And, you know, it's a common story, but I ended up writing a certified bank check for something like $4,000 and asked them to leave 60 days later. And it was, it was painful. Yeah, it can certainly be painful. I just like to think, hey, I'm in this person's shoes. They've been living in the building for 20 years and all of a sudden, right, they get, they get a letter, hey, you know, without any notification of who it's from or where it is send your rent check here, you're being evicted in 30 days. And so I just, I understand kind of the necessity to improve our housing stock. I just would, uh, I just would like to see folks be a little bit more respectful, I think. I'll never forget one last story. I showed up at court. I went to housing court. I took a day off of work at the time and I, my attorney sort of coached me what would happen, what I needed to do. So it was a very basic process. So I waited for like seven hours and I finally got up there and the opposing pro bono attorney just goes, this landlord is represented by counsel who's not present. And therefore I moved for a, a motion to continue. And uh, I about pulled my hair out. What happened? Um, so it's, we went, we were supposed to come back in a couple weeks. And in that interim period, we, we worked something out where I wrote that certified check and uh, yeah I mean look we've had some we've had some horror stories too right where yeah. we've tried to work with tenants and and I'm thinking specifically of one tenant who came in the first the first time and she, we knew this tenant well she was kind of she was on the radar of, of the housing court already and she pretended she was deaf in the first uh, in, in the first um, 
court appearance, and, and she clearly wasn't. We we've had conversations with her before, and then the next one she sh- she showed up with a a neck brace, which we saw her then later at the property without the neck brace on, and and she she kind of had been through the ringer a few times, so so knew the the right uh, tricks to play to make sure that she could extend her tenancy. So obviously there's exceptions to to every rule, but just in in today's incredibly hot housing market, um, I just feel for a lot of the folks who are kind of end up on the streets after yeah. you know thirty days. Oh yeah, yeah. We've bought some buildings, and we've either in our offer said while we're under agreement, hey, can you can we send a letter of um, a notice to the tenants and give them sixty days? And some of them we've talked to them, we've paid them, we've given them more time. One of them we actually ended up going to court, and she kind of did some of the, something similar. She said she needed, she insisted on getting a translator, but then we found out that she could speak English. But she had such a bad experience with the prior owner. She was afraid to talk to anybody else. When we went in there and proved that we weren't total jerks, we we did want her out, but you know we were willing to be flexible. She talked to us some more, and it's the human side. I, I agree with you there. I, I get the compassion part yeah. to it as well, and um, and I think some of the tools that you can bring to bear one just cash if if you are going to relocate someone, I'll pay for your relocation expenses, and two trying to help them find a new place to go, and that's often the challenge, right? There's such a housing shortage that especially if it's a low-income housing tenant or a Section 8, reliant on Section 8. It, it, there isn't just, you know, an ample supply of new apartments to feed them into, but maybe you can try to find, is there any other strategies hey, I'm missing? You know, theoretically, under fair housing law, uh, a landlord cannot discriminate based on a Section 8 tenant, uh, you, or a tenant having can, a Section 8 voucher. You can discriminate on college students, though. Yeah. I the, heard that the earlier. La- the last unprotected class right now. <laughs> huh. That's um, true. But, you know, if you have a Section 8 tenant that needs somewhere to live and they're a tenant of good standing, send them our way. We were talking about this before we started recording too, just a project uh, in Boston that's been kind of a start-stop project for a while and now it's possibly getting going again, but there's been a lot of pushback, you know, in terms of gentrification, right? So I think to all of our points, yes, when we develop and people have to move out, it's hard to find them ex- replacement housing at the price they were paying because maybe they did have a landlord that was giving them a good deal or didn't understand what the current market rates were. I think the tough part is just having society understand that money just doesn't come out of nowhere and just nobody's, no, and, nobody's and, buying and, these right. buildings and investing in them out of the goodness of their heart to not make any money. I mean, right. I mean, and, and for us, that's why we just have, it, it's very hard, you know, we're, we look at probably 20 to 30. 30 projects a week we get sent. Most of the stuff's off market. And, you know, I think we end up doing three or four deals a year, right? So it's it's very hard to find a project that fits in the bucket that works for our strategy. How do you broadly filter your projects? Do you have like a quick go, no-go? You're getting X number of deals coming through your inbox every day. Yeah, so I, I mean, it depends on whether, I mean, so condominium projects, we work with developers like you guys um, every once in a while and we'll raise capital for them. I'll do a quick back of the envelope. Hey, are we at a 20 to 25% gross margin? Is it $5 million to $50 million? And if it's a yay and I like the person you brought it to me, then I'll spend a little more time on it. So that's that's number one. If it's more of our, our kind of typical deal, I look kind of A, on the in-place cap rate, right? So it's your you know, in-place kind of return on cost prior to investing any money in the project. And then I look at if all of these units were rolled to market, what would your return on cost or cap rate be? Hey, what's the biggest 
property that you've purchased from a, either a unit count or dollar amount? Purchased or developed. So the, the largest that we're developing is is the project in, in right now, the, the co-living project, which will be 150,000 square feet. The largest that we've acquired was 64 units. Are you doing most or all of your investing in Massachusetts? Yeah, so far everything is Boston-based. Can you tell us a little bit about 233 Hancock? Sure. That's um, sort of one of your marquee projects and something that's currently under construction? Yeah, we're, we're really excited about this project um, for a few reasons, but this was this was a project that I alluded to earlier where the neighborhood said, hey, there's this kind of auto body shop. We would love to see something different there. Gave us the kind of tip on uh, acquiring it. The project there is it's generally a third affordable, a third middle income, and a third market rate. So we were the first developers in the city of Boston to use Community Preservation Act funding to buy down the affordability. So one of the things in this community we heard a lot of during the community process was, hey, we'd really like more units that are affordable somewhere for folks who are theoretically being displaced to move to. So we ended up working with the state, with the city, and with another social impact group and, and kind of parceled together all these sources of funding to do this first kind of standalone project that's a third, a third, a third. You guys might have heard of the Beverly, the project that Related did downtown that was 100% income restricted. The, w- the way they were able to do that is because it was tied to a, a, a largely market rate project next door. I think this is the first standalone project that at least that I'm aware of where we have, I think it's 58% income restricted without using low-income housing tax credits. So it's uh, like a hybrid. It's a hybrid, exactly. And so another kind of innovative thing that we're trying to do on the project is have a neighborhood preference for at least some of the units. So again, we heard how people in the, the community are being displaced and ultimately what the preference does is allow, I think it's fr- from within a one mile radius, uh, 50% of the units to be filled um, to, to have a preference for folks within a one mile radius. How long did that entire approval process take? Getting the zoning approvals and getting our zoning relief took eight or nine months. Um, I think putting together the capital stack was what was really challenging. It took two years, plus or minus. So it's certainly, you know, not for the faint of heart, but learned so incredibly much in that process that there is so much intellectual capital that we have that we're going to be able to use on jobs going forward that we know it won't take as long. I think we're really just focused on tax credits can take four or five years. The waiting list to build, you know, true affordable housing for folks earning under 60% of area median income and just takes such a long time to do. So how can we do stuff that's similar without waiting that long? You mentioned the Community Preservation Act. So that's, a, we'll call it an additional tax that's put on the real estate tax bill here. It was passed in, was it Boston or Massachusetts? All? Boston. So, Boston. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So you actually got to use some of those funds. You say you were some of the first? Yeah, we, we, were the, we are the first private developer in the city of Boston, or actually the first developer to use the funds. Um, so we kind of went through a double whammy. We had, um, had to help them kind of build out their process and how they were going to administer their funds. And we were the first project ever to receive it. So. Nice. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Thank you. We're stoked about it. So how much money did you get? So we only got $500,000. I think you can get up to $5 million for affordable housing projects underneath the, the Community Preservation Act program. And roughly what's the budget, just to put it um, in context? The budget, I think, is $13 million. Okay. So we have a— uh, is, Sorry, is that acquisition and construction? Acquisition, or? construction, hard costs, soft costs, plus land value. So you mentioned low-income housing tax credits. Yeah. Can you talk a little about what, have you done a deal with LIT? I have not done a, a, a LITEC deal. Yeah. Low in, that's what kind of the, the industry jargon is, LITEC, <laughs> low-income housing tax credits. 
Essentially, instead of raising equity for a project, the government provides tax credits that are sold typically to some sort of corporation or high net worth individual that funds the project. Tax credits and other subsidies make, might make up 60 to 70%, whereas financing is much lower because the supportable loan from the cash flow is much lower because there's a much lower cash flow. And you can use 4% uh, low-income housing tax credits or 9% which are more difficult to get, and that those 4%, 9% are uh, as percentage of qu- qualified costs, which are construction costs, not include land costs, anything which you can depreciate, I believe. Oh, yeah, there's there's a laundry list of items that are included and excluded, and I think one of the, the biggest things that we've learned is every subsidy and, and source of capital has their own laundry list of kind of <laughs> things tied to that subsidy. So whether it's the type of contractor you can use or who has to build the thing or who the tenants have to be, you know, you just better go in with eyes open to make sure you understand what that laundry list of requirements are going to be. So are these list of funds or these sources of funds all going into separate escrow accounts or separate bank accounts? And is that how they know that those funds are being used for those specific things? Or? It's, a, it's a typical requisition process. So typically first goes in your equity, right? Just like kind of any, any project, you're putting your money in first, and then there's some order of the lenders basically that put their funding in thereafter. Do you put properties or land under agreement with contingencies? Yes. We very rarely will go buy a site and take entitlement risk. We will buy a site if it's what we call a covered land play or covered land site, which is basically just we're buying the site. There's some income, whether it's from an auto body shop or a parking lot or something where you're able to cover your cash flow, maybe pay your investors a little bit. And there's downside protection if you're not able to get however much you think you can, you know, the type of density you think you can get entitled. So the terms that you give to your investors, I know you you talked about their rate of return. Yep. What's the term of typically their investment, five years, 10 years, 20 years? We typically underwrite deals on a seven to 10 year horizon just to kind of give a sense to investors, hey, if we hold these deals for the next seven to 10 years, this is generally what your returns will look like. I think the expectation and the conversation we have with all of our investors is that expect that this might be a perpetual hold, but if we're able to return your money in seven, you know, 100% of your original investment in seven to 10 years and then get cash flow into perpetuity thereafter, like in today's market, you should, I, I would think our investors are going to be pretty happy. Oh, so you're getting their money back and you're continuing to make payments to them? That's the goal. You know, we'll keep our fingers crossed. We've, we've, we have returned capital on a bunch of of our deal so far through refinancing. So we'll, we'll keep it going. With that, let's go into a quick round of overrated, underrated, appropriately rated. And in this game, we'll throw out some terms, concepts, uh, ideas, and you let us know whether you think they're overrated, underrated, appropriately rated. So I'll kick it off here. Modular construction. Oh man, that's, that's a, that's a conversation for my brother who keeps the wheels on the bus and, 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 you know, make sure all of our construction sites go on. I mean, we, we, I'm hopeful are going to use modular construction in one of our next few development projects. So I'll let you know after that. I think if we can do it at scale in the city of Boston, decrease the the time of our construction projects, it it will definitely be uh, underrated. Something has to be done with regards to construction costs. If you're trying to solve the affordable housing riddle, uh, the con- construction costs are just too high. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we'll 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 let you know in the next few months. You yeah. know, w- what do you think? As current, overrated. Someone will solve that riddle. To me, and I've seen a few projects priced both ways. You can save on time, but I don't see it as a big 
cost savings right now. Yeah. There's all these venture capital firms who are investing like billions of dollars and like becoming vertically integrated, putting a lot of smart money and, and smart minds behind this problem. I think it will be solved. I think it's going to take a lot of time um, before it gets to be really... I think in the, in the suburban single family market, I know a lot of people are using modular, but in the multi-unit urban development type environment, it's, I, I don't know. Yeah, there, I've seen probably four or five projects that have, have done it very successfully. The question is just whether you can get a Mark Savatsky type design out there <laughs> out, of, out of the modular construction. I've seen it. I've seen it in various areas. I, I think it can work. Micro units. Ooh, I think, I think they're a little overhyped. In that sense, the construction costs are, are that much more expensive. You know, I think when people underwrite these deals, they look at them, they say, oh, we can make these units more affordable because they're smaller and we can get a higher price per square foot on the unit. And then they go and, and you know, bring the deal to a contractor and the construction costs come in 20% higher than they anticipated just because there's so many more guts in that building. So I think in, in some senses, they're overrated. So the reason construction costs go up with unit count is because you have that many more kitchens, that many more bathrooms, that many more water heaters and furnaces. So Transit-oriented developments. Oh, I mean, I think it's appropriately rated. I think that's, I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? If you look at our population growth for the city, we just need more transit-oriented developments and we need to make that transit better. I guess my, I guess that wasn't really very fair and it's not in the spirit of the game, but can we talk about that real quick? Just yeah. should that mean more density and more height and less parking requirements around those transit-oriented locations, specifically subway the stops, hubs, the main yeah, hubs? I yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think that urban planning kind of 101 right now is is really that's kind of the, the key that they're talking about. I think that we need to solve both the transportation issue as well as the density issue. I think that generally folks are are – pretty darn close to accepting the fact that parking ratios need to be below one in transit-oriented areas. And the city of Boston has, has really embraced that. And, I, you know, I think you're seeing kind of an average parking ratio of a transit-oriented site probably below 0.5 now, which I think is great. In some instances, I think developers would be willing to go to zero. It's just really what the community will be okay with. Right. Rent control. Oh, man. That is a, that's a loaded question. And that's coming up um, now. That's coming, coming back into the um, headlines here. I think it's uh, appropriately rated. I think that it gets a lot of, of negative publicity um, in some instances, rightfully so. What I would really like to see communities and housing advocates and progressive housing folks think about is incentivizing development rather than disincentivizing development. And my worry with rent control is that it's just a disincentive for folks to build new housing. I would much rather see things like tax abatement and density bonuses and subsidy for additional affordable and middle-income units in new projects, then I would like to see things that impede the new development. Yeah. Actually, there's a great Freakonomics podcast recently on rent control. And one of the big takeaways was space is used very inefficiently in cities with rent controls. You have any number of three-bedroom units where, uh, you know, maybe mom had two kids growing up and they're now off to college, but you're paying so little for that unit that you just, hey, well, I'm just going to stay here. It's 800 bucks a month. For that reason, like people don't go into the right units. And that is a tremendous inefficiency. 
I also think that the cost of administering rent control, if you look at kind of the 10 to 20 year cost of creating the processes, hiring the personnel, if you took that money and you basically said, I'm going to buy existing housing stock and create more income restrictions, and especially where tenants are afraid of displacement and worried about displacement, I think that would be dollars much better spent. Green building. I think it's appropriately rated as long as you don't need to stick a, a LEED certification on the side of the building. If you can do things that are, you know, green and, and I think it just improves the brand of your building. It helps with the operations of your building. We're, uh, we're putting solar on, on most of our buildings now. Well, we'll let you know in 10 years how they hold up and, and see how it works. It was interesting because you're trying to build, you know, middle income affordability type buildings and obviously green buildings are much more expensive to build. So it's like that happy medium. Right. You know, that's something that we're constantly struggling and thinking through, right? We we want to do everything and we want to save the world and build middle-income housing. But our primary focus is on building the housing. And then if we're able to do it in a way that we can reduce tenants' electricity bills because we have solar on the roof, great. But if it's not economically feasible, then it's okay. We'll figure it out for the next one. Yeah, and you are also holding these buildings for... The, the goal is to hold them for a long time. So it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily can add them as time goes on right, too. Right. You know, so everything we're doing, right, all the roofs in Boston have to be solar ready now anyway. So I find solar really difficult to fit on any of our projects because the roofs are so valuable as roof decks and maybe spaces for MEP equipment. Like there isn't a lot of available space on any roof that I've done recently. And a lot of these smaller or a lot of these companies that, you know, hey, if you go into Home Depot and they're trying to sell you solar or they come around to your home and they're trying to sell solar, a lot of these companies won't install solar on flat roofs. They'll only install solar on on a pitched roof. Yeah, and, and the issue with a lot of those companies as well, you know, there are significant tax benefits from putting solar on your building. What happens with a lot of these companies is they take those tax benefits and they provide you basically solar at maybe a slightly reduced cost than you otherwise would. If you're the one basically getting the benefit of actually creating that electricity as well as getting those tax benefits, the economic incentive is much higher than if you're just going to, a, you know, Home Depot. And, and, and so it's, I mean, we're trying to figure it out and it's, our, you know, iterate every project, try to learn a little bit more and, and keep it going. Conceptual construction estimates. So by that, I mean, you know, very early on schematic design construction estimates. Um, I, I mean, we do them and they're usually between 30 and 50% correct. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I think I think they're probably <laughs> overrated in the sense that um, no, I, th- I think they're probably equally rated. You need to do them. You need to make sure you're in the right realm, um, and you need to make sure you have an architect who really can hone in and and doesn't overdesign a building, especially for what we're doing. Do you run into that a lot? Do you have to like rein architects in? I think that's the nature of the development business. Um, it's it's also the the nature of kind of workforce housing and affordable housing, right? You have a very strict budget of what you kind of you need to to make the project feasible, and, and you need to be very upfront early on with with your architects and your design team about, hey, here's where we need to be. You know, let's move away from whatever beautiful siding you guys want to use on on your buildings to something that's a little bit more reasonable for for stuff. So. As a former construction estimator, I would say that it's a lo- it's a trick question because I think that conceptual estimates it all depends on who's providing it. Oh, that's so, a great and, point. In the most, and so I, I set you up for that. But the most important factor to me is related project experience. Have you just built? 
two, three of these types of projects in this neighborhood of this scale? And if so, I will rely on that estimate, you know, and, and probably put a lot of weight behind it. But if this is your first time doing this multifamily thing and you're using RS means, you just crumble it up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the same time, it's how much time, you know, if it's, if you're working with a large GC, right, how much time are they actually spending on it? Or is it, hey, here's the price per unit of the building in Somerville that we just did and you're in Boston. There's obviously differences there depending on the size of the project. So it's, it's how much, you know, what kind of relationship you have with that general contractor and are they sitting down walking you through all of those estimates and you really understand where there's deficiency and where there's not. I just had a couple more talking points, not really underrated, overrated. And it, <laughs> and it could get a little heated. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, not heated, but dun, dun, I don't want to sound like an asshole, basically. You know, so you've got deed restrictions yep. that are generally for the benefit of the public, the greater public. What type of deed lots. restrictions? Well, it could be, that's the thing, right? So a lot of your projects are probably deed restricted on the resale of the units. So you don't get all of these credits and... um yeah, they're 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 deed restricted for you right. know tenants have to be income certified every year. Yeah, right. Things like that. Um, and then the other thing I was going to bring up was like the the no fault evictions, right? So that's a big buzzword these days. And I don't really know how to say like underrated or overrated, appropriately rated, because I think it's more just a you know do we agree with the concept of it of of you being able to evict someone from their home. Right, um, want to renovate a unit, and I mean, I give them plenty of time, but then they want. Are they to, on a le- they, they, they want. Are to, they on a lease? Well, say that they are, and say that they aren't. Right, so you have some that are, some that aren't, and you just have them. Yeah, move if they're out on, at a, the if end they're of on the a lease, lease, then you have to wait till right. end of the lease. Um, but I'm saying, no fault eviction. The proposal is to prevent that. You can't do. Yeah, that. I mean, there's there's current policy. The mayor, I believe, is trying to pass right now where uh, there's certain protected classes, right, senior citizens. You know, honestly, I think it's 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 a really touchy issue, and it's on such it's such a nuanced case by case item that it's 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 really hard to just make a blanket judgment call. I get it if there's a senior in the home and you're the buyer and you didn't do your due diligence and know that there's a senior there, and you're gonna just go throw them out on the street and they have nowhere to go. I don't, I don't get too excited about that, but if it's if you're gonna do it in a well, to the earlier points, we give them, we help them, right? It's I'm just saying. I don't agree with this blanket statement that re- certain classes or certain tenants just you, they can never leave unless they do something wrong. Yeah, that's that seems insane to me. Can't tell if we're like, are we on the record here? Or are we just bantering? I don't know. There's some kind of period where okay, it's now appropriate. You've gotten notice, and I think Somerville's got like two years if you want to do a condo conversion. And I don't know what five this proposal is. Five now, if it's your senior. Okay, I thought it was two. But either way, I mean, yeah. So that was my that was my rambling. So one last one. <clears throat> one last. Okay, uh, roadie architects. Oh, definitely, definitely underrated. I mean, they're they're appropriately rated. They've got a great name, but they they're amazing folks. They have got they're just great with the Boston Article eighty process. I love their design, um, and they're just really fun to work with. Is D'Artagnan going to be mad at that? Uh, I actually no. don't know D'Artania, you know. They're all good friends. If he's listening, I want to meet you as well. <laughs> Excellent. So a concluding question here, is there one thing that you want to see more of in development? And if you could name one thing that you'd like to see less of. Sure. I I, I want to see more innovation in, in um, kind of niche ways of building housing, whether that's co-living, whether that is using different new types of subsidies to build housing. I really want to see folks kind of move away from the 
a deal needs to be low-income housing tax credits. A deal needs to be subsidized like this, right? And and thinking of kind of blurring the lines between historically public and private deals. And I think we're starting to see that. And that's kind of what we're really focused on. I really want to see less of, there's such a prevalent conversation about the percentage of units that need to be affordable in every development. And some folks, you know, say it needs should be 10% if you're a developer. If you're in the community, you might say 20 or 25. And I think that that headline number is just such nonsense. And it's, it's a much more intricate conversation depending on where you are. And again, I don't want to disincentivize development. So I'd rather see in a 100-unit project, there be 10 units that are affordable than that project never get built. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do it? Just go to the website. ArxUrban, A-R-X-U-R-B-A-N.com and just type whatever you want and to contact me and I'll, uh, I'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks, Benji. Yeah, thank you. Guys, fun. thanks for having me. Hopefully I'm going to go to the dentist, get my teeth as nice as <laughs> <laughs> Have All a right. good one. All right, we'll catch you on the eyes later. <laughs> <laughs>